This is Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is Mobile Suit Breakdown, episode 1.18. What will you do now? And we are your hosts. I'm Tom, longtime Gundam fan, and now discovering all kinds of new feelings thanks to Kaecilia. <laughs> and I'm Nina. You longtime Gundam fans have no idea how I feel. Welcome back to Mobile Suit Breakdown. This episode is airing on December 29th, 2018, so we are solidly in the middle of the holiday season here in the U.S. The holidays can be pretty difficult, and so wherever you are and whatever you're struggling with right now, we hope that you can find some joy and some escape in a little anime we like to call Mobile Suit Gundam. We have some thank yous and some exciting announcements to share with you this week. First, thank yous go out to Mark, Connor, Cheeto Bandito on Instagram, Zeltronus, and Reddit user GoodApollo. Thank you all for your comments, your suggestions, and in some cases, your constructive criticism. Now, this is our last episode before the new year. So first, we want to tell you a little bit about our plans for 2019, which is, remember, Gundam's 40th anniversary. It was almost exactly a year ago that we had the idea to make this podcast. And after months of planning, buying equipment, learning the barest rudiments of audio engineering, and then actually watching some Gundam and making the first couple of episodes, we publicly launched the podcast four months ago. We've seen really amazing growth since then, and that's all thanks to you phenomenal listeners and the support that you've shown us. You've shared your thoughts with us, and you've shared us with your friends, and we really couldn't be more grateful. We love making this podcast, we love hearing from all of you, and we're so glad that we've been able to help you appreciate Gundam in new ways. Or just appreciate Gundam. As we move into 2019 and look forward to finishing up First Gundam and its compilation movies and beginning to cover Zeta Gundam, we're also looking at ways to grow the podcast. We love making this podcast, but as you can probably guess, it takes an enormous amount of time to make each episode. There's just the two of us doing all the research, writing, recording, editing, publishing, and promoting for MSB. A single episode can take more than 30 hours of work from each of us, and that's not counting all of the fun MSB side projects like the Gundam-themed calligraphy I'm working on. So at the start of 2019, we are going to be launching a Patreon to support the project. The podcast you're listening to now will always be free to anyone who wants to listen. That's a promise. But if you want to support us, Patreon is a crowdfunding service that allows fans who want to help fund a project like ours to contribute a small amount on a monthly basis. We have tons of cool perks planned for the Patreon, including a private Discord server, special bonus episodes, Frabo and the Orphans band t-shirts, the opportunity to submit wrong Gundam opinions, and a whole lot more. You'll be able to find us at patreon.com slash gundampodcast, and there will be links on our social media profiles as soon as that page is live. But if you want to support the podcast and you can't do it monetarily, we appreciate every like, share, retweet, comment, and review, and they all mean more to us than you know. We want to share our appreciation and maybe promote the podcast a little more while we do it, so we are going to be having a giveaway contest. To be eligible to win, all you need to do is any of the following sometime before February 1st. 
Like Mobile Suit Breakdown's page on Facebook. Follow at Gundam Podcast on Twitter. Follow at Gundam Podcast on Instagram. Support us on Patreon. Or write us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And then email a copy of the review to us so that we know that you wrote it. If you do more than one of those things, then you will be entered into the contest more than once. We're going to be announcing our amazing prizes throughout January, but we'll tell you about the first one right now. And what could that first prize be? Why Gundam, of course! We'll be giving away a bunch of copies of First Gundam on DVD, so that you can watch along with the podcast. Already have your own copy? Give the gift of Gundam to a friend. Last week, Amuro had a bit of a breakdown that saw him steal the Gundam and abandon the White Base, flying off into the dark of night somewhere in Central Asia, near the Caspian Sea. And now, episode 18, or 17 in the English version, Zion's Secret Mine, or Shakunetsu no Azamrida. As we'll discuss later this episode, the Azamrida is Zion's top-of-the-line new weapon. Shakunetsu means red-hot, scorching, or incandescent. Azamrida means uh, basically nothing. It's Azam is the name of a thing that they made up. <laughs> well, and Rida is leader. This week, we're discussing forced labor of POWs, the real-life science of Xeon's new weapon, Japan's economic miracle, destroying tech to keep it secret, cognac, and ninja outfits. But first, the recap. In a desolate and abandoned desert city, Amuro hides out with the Gundam. As he stares into the night, an unfamiliar Xeon ship, bristling with guns and carrying Kaecilia and McVeigh, flies low overhead. Back at the White Base, Hayato wonders what they will do if Amuro returns. Kai points out that deserters are executed, and while Ryu assures Fravo they would never do that to Amuro, Sela and Bright maintain that it is an option. While Fra is horrified and exclaims that she can't very well try to convince him to come back only to be executed, even she has to admit that Amaro has really messed up this time. Full of conflicting feelings, Fra sets out in a dirt buggy looking for Amaro, Mirai and Ryu's promises to keep Amaro safe replaying in her head. She tracks the Gundam by its footprints and finds Amaro sheltering in an abandoned building. Confronted by Fra, he refuses to admit he's done anything wrong and resents what he sees as the crew's concern for the Gundam but not for him. Fra accuses him of running away again, to which he replies, You can't possibly understand me before running away again. Fra is following him when they happen upon a Xeon mining facility. Amaro listens in on the Xeon command center, overhearing McVeigh and Caecilia discuss the mine's importance, not just for the war, but also in Xeon politics. While Fra goes to inform the White Base of the mine's location, Amuro decides that surely this is the mine the Federation plans to attack on Odessa Day. He sets out to destroy it single-handedly. That'll show Bright and Mirai. Amuro fights fiercely, but with little strategy, almost succumbing to an artillery barrage from the tanks and turrets guarding the mine. Under this surprise attack by the Gundam, Caecilia and McVeigh decide to test a new weapon, the Adzam Leader. The Gundam is incapacitated, but McVeigh waits too long to finish it. While the leader weapon totally disabled the mobile suits it was tested on, it only temporarily shut down the Gundam, and the moment it turns off, Amuro is able to attack again. Realizing they've been beaten, Caecilia orders McVeigh to retreat and to destroy the mine to prevent state secrets falling into Federation hands. Amuro is pleased with himself for destroying the mine, thinking that he's accomplished alone what the Federation planned to use their whole strength to achieve. But as he explores the ruins, searching for information amongst the mangled computers, he finds records indicating that this is Mine 102. There are in fact dozens more facilities just like this one. 
Outside, he finds a wounded Zeon soldier and assures him that someone, Federation or Zeon, will be there soon. Although Amuro is not in uniform, the soldier guesses that he is the mobile suit pilot and ruefully tells him, don't go easy on your enemy, you don't have enough lives for that. By the time the white base arrives, Amuro is long gone. Ryu laments that with this attack, Amuro has put the Zeon forces on guard and endangered the Odessa Day operation. As Fra sets off to look for Amuro again, she thinks to herself, he has no idea how I feel. Tom can tell you, I spent <laughs> most of this episode in a rage at Amaro, <laughs> having to constantly remind myself that he is 15 years old and did not knowingly become a soldier. We've had this discussion before that he did get into a weapon of war yep. and attack enemy soldiers with it. He made the original decision. He just didn't understand what it was going to mean for him in the long run. Yes. But the depths of self-pity and self-centeredness <laughs> that we see in this episode are truly frustrating. And yet nobody he hits him. <laughs> Bravo really looks like she wants to a couple of times. She's the only person who gets close enough, to be fair. Well, Kaecilia and Makveh try to. <laughs> but yeah, we have Amaro hiding out not particularly well in the desert. If you find yourself in an abandoned building eating tinned beans over a propane stove with a pistol next to you, chances are you have made some mistakes. <laughs> uh, and really, first we get the crew of the white base all looking kind of dazed, right? Everybody just milling around the bridge uncomfortably. And Hayato is the first person to break the silence by saying, well, but what do we do if he comes back? And because Kai, bless Kai's heart, <laughs> reminds everyone that the punishment for desertion is traditionally death. And as we talked about in the Kukudu's Doan's Island episode, uh, while the Allies' side of the war did not execute very many deserters, there were some, and the Axis side executed quite a few people. Japan specifically executed probably tens of thousands of people, many of whom may not not actually have been deserters. Fra is, of course, horrified that they would even entertain such a notion. And Bright doesn't totally say he won't do it. He's like, well, it's what the regulations say I'm supposed to do, but <laughs> sort of leaves it open-ended. Fra was sort of like, no, you wouldn't. And everyone is like, no, no, we wouldn't. Except Sela, who's like, well, we could if we had to. It's, it's an option. Sela would do it. And the best Mirai can say is, we won't let them do anything foolish. But I think it is also Mirai who confronts Fra and says, you do agree with us that Amaro did something wrong, right? This is unacceptable. <laughs> I think Fra is very torn because she yeah. wants to protect Amaro. In this first scene on the bridge, she says, why would I go talk Amaro into coming back to maybe getting executed? But then when she does go find him, everything that he has to say for himself is so self-pitying. Oh, yeah. And so unacceptable. And then by the end of the episode, she's like, he doesn't understand how I feel. Mm -hmm. Because he doesn't. She's constantly putting herself in the middle for him and making excuses for him and trying to protect him. How many times have we seen her speak up for him when he's not there? And he has no clue. Oh, yeah. She opens this episode saying, I can understand why Amro would run away from you monstrous people who 
execute people who run away from you. And then she goes out into the desert and she finds Amuro and she confronts him. And it turns out to not be the way she thought it was. It's not that he's like horrified by the nature of military life and wanted to get away from all these awful people. It's that he's a self-righteous, self-pitying little... <laughs> 15-year-old boy who is in over his head and dealing with emotions he doesn't understand. And essentially in a pet, like... In a what? A pet. He's pouting. He's having a tantrum. Yeah, she shows up and Amaro is quick to... Almost shoot her? Well, though she's very understanding about that. I shouldn't have snuck up on you. I shouldn't have barged in. (laughs) It's like she just walked into his room and found him doing something very embarrassing. Lying on the floor with his gun in his hand. I think she's shocked that he's the sort of person now who, when he hears someone coming, gets ready in that way. I think it it changes for her the way she thinks of Amuro right now. Mm-hmm. But the first thing he says is, oh, this is what everyone's really worried about. And he points to the Gundam. Of course it is. You little bleep, So-and-so. bleep, bleep, bleep. You took their strongest weapon away from them. You left them all less well defended. When you, you left know, them all, when you know that you're surrounded by enemies, you left them all in more danger. What's interesting about Amuro in this whole episode, and it comes up in this encounter, and then it keeps coming up later and later, is that he doesn't view himself as a deserter. When Frabo says, "If you come back now, they're all going to forgive you," he says, "What do I need to be forgiven for? I haven't done anything wrong." Obviously, he has, but <laughs> he doesn't think of it that way. And then he goes and he finds the Zeon base, and he does reconnaissance, and then he attacks it. Amuro doesn't view himself as having left the struggle. He still thinks he's part of the Federation's fight against Zeon. He just wants to get away from Mirai and Bright who are bullying him. He wants to fight this war on his own. Well, it's all about pride for him. It becomes very clear as this episode goes on. His pride is hurt. Frau knows that. That line she has, which is really weird in the English translation about you're just afraid that people won't accept you. Which she says it very quickly. So it was very difficult to try to catch all of the Japanese. But it's something like, which means something like, the real reason is you're not confident that you'll receive mitomeru from them. And mitomeru, while it can mean acceptance, it doesn't mean in the sense of like a group of friends accept you. It's more like appreciation, acknowledgement, recognition, and approval. It's that he doesn't feel adequately appreciated by them. His pride is hurt because they don't recognize how awesome he is. So he's going to go off on his own and win the war by himself and then everyone is going to recognize how awesome he is. And they won't be able to punish him if he does this great thing. And in his defense, who among us did not feel that way at 15 at one point or another? The whole world's against me. And the only way is for me to prove that I'm better than all of them. Better than they could possibly imagine. And when they recognize my greatness, then they'll appreciate me. Then they'll let me play with the Gundam all I want. And by the end of the episode, Fra has heard everyone on the bridge talking about how this attack, which was not on the correct location, will now have put all of Xeon on their guard. Mm -hmm. Everything is going to be more well defended. Everything is going to be that much harder for the rest of them because Amuro had to take matters into his own hands. And then that's when we see Frog get angry and take off in the dune buggy again to find Amaro again. 
Maybe this time he will get slapped. Quite possibly. And that's when she thinks to herself, he doesn't understand how I feel. Because earlier in the episode, he throws at her that she can't possibly understand how he feels. And in that moment, you know, to some degree, he's right. She has not been piloting anything. She hasn't been an active combatant. But he doesn't understand how she feels. Because here she has been trying to get everyone to forgive him, trying to get everyone to promise nothing bad will happen to him when he comes back, trying to fix things. And he just keeps making it worse. He's so bad bad at everything he does on his own. You know, he does his best to camouflage the Gundam with <laughs> some drastically insufficient tarps. I don't know where he found those tarps. He does not have enough tarps. See, I I feel like this episode was a long string of did the Gundam just have that stored away somewhere? Cuz like the tarps, the little gas burner he's cooking his canned food on. The yeah. canned food. Did, yeah. Is there just a stash of rations on the Gundam? It would make sense for there to be such a thing. It's also possible he just stowed those in his bag before he left. But he also leaves a trail everywhere he goes. <laughs> yes. And he leaves huge Gundam footprints, which is how Frabo finds him. I love that. I don't know that he could have done anything about that except flying more, but he also leaves empty cans of, I presume, beans all over the place. So in a long abandoned city, just like a 15 year old boy, he is a slob. <laughs> That's mean. I'm sure not all 15-year-old boys are slobs. Sure, but I was a 15-year-old boy, <laughs> and I'm pretty sure I was a slob. Was? Hey. <laughs> <laughs> well, and um, another capability we didn't know the Gundam had, it appears to have some ridiculously good listening equipment because he can hear them talking from the command center of this mine. It's like a microphone. It like comes out of the side of the Gundam's face. We see it in a brief shot here. It comes out of the Gundam's face and then it extends out towards whatever it's recording from. But he's really far from them mm -hmm. and they're behind glass. Mm -hmm. It's not a radio pickup. They don't have a radio on that I can see. Mm -hmm. And... I mean, this is one of those hand wave things. There's yeah. no way a microphone could just pick up their conversation over the sounds of a working mine. But, you know. And it's, well, we could assume that Amaro doesn't actually hear them because he doesn't seem to learn anything from that conversation. There are a number of points in this episode, mm -hmm. this point included, that I think are meant to show us Amaro's overconfidence and mm -hmm. his inability to kind of process the information in front of him mm -hmm. in any kind of reason reasonable, tactical way. Mm -hmm. Because when he first shows up, he notices Cassilia immediately. Who's that? And yet when he attacks, he doesn't attack there first. Mm -hmm. He also notices the Adzam does not attack that first. He even saw it the night before and noticed all the turrets and guns on it. Mm -hmm. Again, leaves it. So he notices these things that are threats or that mm -hmm. are important, and yet that does not go into his attack plan. He hears them discuss the fact that there is another mine not far away, 50 kilometers to the north. Yet he assumes this must be the one right. that General Revel means for them to attack. Even though if he thought about it, it's a small enough facility that why would you bring the entire Federation strength against it? That wouldn't make any sense. Amuro just doesn't have a sense for the scale of this war that he's fighting. The biggest threat that he's encountered so far was when he ran into Garma with one Gao attack carrier and a deployment of like three Zaku and 20 tanks or something. Mm-hmm. Which is a lot, sure, but when you compare it to the scale of a world war, or in this case, a world and some colonies war, mm -hmm. that's tiny. Yeah. I don't think he understands just how big this war is. It also plays into this narrative he has about himself as so important and so strong. Yeah, I by myself can accomplish what would have taken the entire Federation army to do. Right. And he's got some, you know, based on his limited experience with the white base, where he's the only one, it seems like, who is able to 
defend the white base and he's able to do everything and nobody can stop him and nobody else can do what he can do. It's easy to understand how he developed that kind of narcissistic idea of himself. Yes, but <laughs> I mean, there's also been the consistent counter effect of critique from Bright. But all that's done is made Amaro resent Bright. I can't help but feel like this ties back into some of our earlier discussions of the fact that Amaro was never really parented <laughs> by anybody. You know, he's been more or less left to his own devices to grow up and so does not have the mediating influence to temper any of these like pretty violent swings in self-perception. <laughs> I think we should address the Xeon soldier at the end that Amuro encounters. Yeah. So after Amuro has destroyed the base. Well, well after Xeon has destroyed the base, yeah. which Amuro is perfectly happy to take credit for. <laughs> he encounters a lone Xeon survivor, a wounded young man, older than Amuro, but still a young soldier, who is looking at a picture of his sweetheart. And Amuro runs over to this guy and he checks his wound and brings him some water. He says, you're going to be okay. And he gives him a flare and he says, shoot this off when the red rescue forces come and you got to keep hoping mm -hmm. which is sweet after <laughs> all of the death and destruction Amaro has caused and uh. we'll talk about that in a second but as Amaro was walking away this wounded Xeon soldier is like I, I know you're the pilot of that mobile suit <laughs> even if we're not going to acknowledge it because if we acknowledged it one or the other of us would have to kill the other guy but you know maybe don't go easy on your enemies you don't have enough lives for that yep it's a nice little line it's a lesson Amaro needs to learn it comes back to your point about Amaro thinks of himself as a big hero as a savior and not as a soldier that's dangerous a second ago he was prepared to kill this guy because this guy happened to be wearing a Xeon uniform and proximate to this mine and now that the guy is wounded and Amuro is not in the Gundam it's like oh let me save you While Amuro and Fraubo are doing the emotional heavy lifting of this episode, we do keep getting cuts back to the rest of the crew on the white base who provide a sort of commentary function, almost like the Greek chorus in a classical play. They're there in groups discussing what they, and in a way what the audience thinks of Amuro. And I thought this was most interesting when we see a group of mostly characters we've never encountered before. Job John is there. And, and then two other guys. And they're discussing how this guy Amuro is a, a deserter. Maybe he's gone over to Zia. Why? They'd give him a fortune if he brought them the Gundam. What do you think? Is this meant to make us consider the sort of reception Amuro might get when he returns? Maybe. We've mentioned a few times he thinks of himself as heroic, but after this incident, nobody sees him that way. No. He sees himself as this hero on a lonely journey to win the war all by himself. Prove himself. Yeah. And he's going to return having done some great deed. But the way he's actually viewed by the other people on the crew is not as a hero. He's a soldier he's a pilot who was defending them and now has abandoned them and that to them there's almost no moral distinction between him leaving and hanging out by himself in the desert versus him leaving to go over to Zeon. they are pretty much equally bad <laughs> there's no sense of oh Amuro left us but he, he would never go over to Zeon. it's like Amuro left us and he might <laughs> yeah it's not oh Amuro, we all know he's such a good dude he would never <laughs> he would never join the Zeon. no that's not what it is and on a higher level we have the characters who are more familiar with like Kai and Ryu and Hayato discussing Amuro in a different scene where they're cleaning guns and doing other necessary tasks around the ship. And Kai even looks at Ryu and Hayato through the chamber of a revolver. Obviously, we're 
meant to be thinking about the possible execution. Yeah. Well, and Kai sort of says that when he's playing with the revolver, he mimes like he's pointing it at Amuro and says, when he gets back, I like to... And then the, the revolver falls apart, which I think is actually meant to be a sort of visual cue that Kai doesn't really mean it. He's I, just bluffing. I don't think Kai means it either. The fact that he brings it up almost jokingly <laughs> when he first brings it up is to me an indication that he doesn't mean it. Mm-hmm. But somebody has to say it. Yes. And it's Kai's role, self, <laughs> self-professed role, to say what has to be said. And, and the things people maybe don't want to hear. I think Bright's sort of casual attitude on the bridge is mm-hmm. indicative of the fact that he doesn't think he needs to execute no, Amuro. No. Uh, and I do think but Ryu and Mirai are the people Bright listens to the most. They're the two people in the crew he respects the most. So while maybe because of his position as commander, Bright can't say, oh, we won't do that to Amuro, having both Mirai and Ryu say, we won't let it happen, is just about the same thing. However... What nobody says to Fra, because in that moment, Fra's being a little protective, <laughs> is that this is very serious. Yeah. And they need to do something. Yeah. Like, he can't come back and have nothing happen. There have to be consequences for yeah. what he's done. And now that the damage he's done goes farther than the white base itself, it might be out of their hands. Yeah. Uh, if it if it gets out, if it gets back to Federation Command, what has happened? Yeah. When you talked about deserters a few episodes ago, I remember you mentioning that what was actually really common was for people to go into this sort of fugue state and just wander away and sleep for a few days in a barn or under a tree or something and then come back. At first we see Amuro and we think maybe that's what he's going to do. He's going to sleep for a few days in this bombed out city and then he's going to go back. And by the end of this episode, it doesn't look like that's going to happen. And once he attacks the base, it really does feel like there's no easy going back for him at this point. When he finds the mine and Fraud joins him and he says, I can't radio the white base because the radio communications might get picked up but you can go back and I can stay and keep an eye on things. It feels like he has decided that he's in this, right? Mm -hmm. In that moment we think, okay, he's decided, he's a soldier, he's part of this crew, he's supporting the mission. Yeah, this is just a little unordered reconnaissance. He had a little bit of a tantrum but now he's back and he's ready to work. And then he... messes that up too. Because remember, Amuro has never turned down a fight and he is not about to start now. I keep thinking back to Shar's line, nobody wants to admit to them the mistakes we make because of our youth, which feels way more relevant now that there have been way more mistakes. As we've talked about many times, this is not a show for children. And there's a joke in this episode that really <laughs> drives that home. Because when Frau Bo is leaving in her little dune buggy and the orphans watch her go, one of them says, oh, do you think that Amro is a VSOP? And he clearly means VIP. And there's a whole little joke bit here about how he doesn't know the right word for it. Right. For very important person. But VSOP is a cognac term. <laughs> and I suspect that very few Japanese children... <laughs> are familiar with what bottles of cognac look like. This is a joke that only works for an older audience. Or that maybe some board animators put in and writers <laughs> included. Yeah. It's a heavy episode. Maybe they felt like they needed a joke. Yeah, maybe they should have put it later, though. True. So what does VSOP stand for? Well, we'll just have to research that. <laughs> We 
We get a very interesting intro shot, full body, of Kaecilia. Kishiria, as one of our friends says it. I'm going to say Kaecilia, sorry. But of her in her full uniform. And Tom and I both had the same reaction, but in slightly different ways. Both of us went, you know who she looks like? And then we said different names. And I said Shredder from and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> and I said Cobra Commander from G.I. Joe. The point being, she has the face mask, the helmet with pointy bits. Well, and the helmet hangs down the back and protects the back of her neck. She has these large, rather pointy pauldrons over her shoulders. There's a villainous look <laughs> about her. Well, and the cape and the tunic-style clothing. Yeah, there's something very iconic about that triangle face mask that covers everything below the eyes. Right, it, it comes across the cheek, under the eye, over the bridge of the nose, and back down the other side. Yeah, and she's not wearing it the whole time. I mean, we see her in the Garma funeral scene. She doesn't have it on. And when she's in the base and she's talking to uh, Makaveh, she doesn't have it on. She pulls it up over her nose when they go into battle mode. That's more or such less. a great scene. <laughs> uh, well, this is the most we see of her interacting with anyone. Mm -hmm. And we get a sense of just how stone cold she oh is. Oh my God. Yeah, this is Kaecilia's episode. And she she makes use of every second that she's on screen. You know, first, when she and McVeigh are going through the base to go get the Adzam, and she says to him, I'm not sure I can forgive you for letting the mobile suit get so close to the base without oh, being noticed. Man. I love that. Basically implying that if he doesn't save their bacon, he's in deep trouble. Yeah. Well, and even when she's first being introduced and all we have is a still shot of her, her eyes are just piercing. Yes. Laser beams right through the back of your skull. And we'll talk about the combat shortly, but when when Amuro manages to escape from the Adzam leader, she says, okay, that's it. We have to destroy the mine. And McVeigh, who we have every reason to believe is pretty cold-hearted himself, is startled and says, there are still soldiers there. And her reaction is essentially, doesn't matter at this point, preserving our state secrets and the military secrets that are in the mine is more important than those soldiers are. And they blow the whole thing up. Yep. Stone cold. And then we get a line from her at the end that is a consequence of Amuro's intemperate attack on the mine and some nice foreshadowing for what's to come. Because the last thing she says is, we're going to have to ramp up testing and production of those new mobile suits. Mm -hmm. She mentions several times during this episode that the Gundam's performance exceeds all of their previous notes, data, readings from all of the previous combats. Well, it's a combination of that learning computer and Amuro's getting better. Yep. This is paralleling something Amuro said in the previous episode when he was simulating the goof as a kind of better Zaku. Mm -hmm. And then he goes into battle and he fights Ramba Rawl and Ramba exceeds all of his expectations. Yeah. And Amuro has that moment of, oh, it's really the performance of the pilot that I need to be studying, not just the performance of the suit. So despite being terrible, Amuro's getting better at mobile suiting. He's getting worse at everything else right now. We also get glimpses into some pretty significant new Xeon technology. The Adzam. The Adzam, which is basically a flying slash also terrestrial ovoid thing covered in turrets, <laughs> covered in guns. Well, and I said it looked like an insect. Nina thought it looked like a frog. Well, when it was on the ground, thought mm -hmm. it looked vaguely. It sort of squat on small legs. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, just bristling with guns. And the leader. Yeah, which is a kind of magnetic cage that uses a, some sort of magnetic dust. It looks like magnetic dust. Or sand, some kind of particulates mm -hmm. that settle all over the Gundam because the Gundam shot at it and it exploded right. and then the sand came down. And then it shoots out this basically cage that surrounds the Gundam and it runs an electric charge through it. Some sort of magnetic radiation field happens and the Gundam gets superheated. And this 
forces the Gundam to shut down because all of the power is being used to keep the cockpit cool. Right. Just to keep Amuro from being boiled alive inside the Gundam. Mm -hmm. And it ends up not being enough. The magnetic radiation field weakens and then dissipates before the Gundam is completely disabled. It's not enough, but it's clear that Xeon is developing new technologies in order to counter the Gundam. And they're getting pretty close to being successful. It's definitely by the skin of his teeth that Amuro was able to survive this time. I found myself wondering during that scene if the magnetic field prevented them from firing on the Gundam while it, the magnetic field was up. Mm-hmm. Because while the magnetic field was up, Amuro couldn't move. Yeah, he they, couldn't do anything. They should have just destroyed him then. If they could have. But, uh, you know. It's, yeah, I mean, it's. I'd say it's a toss up between they couldn't versus McVeigh was too busy monologuing. Mm-hmm. Well, which Casilia <laughs> calls him out. She says, hey, hurry up and take out this mobile suit before it comes back online. As a side note of trivia in Haruhi Suzumiya there's a reference to this oh really yeah at one point Kion is feeling very like tired and he says it feels like he's been hit with the Adzam's leader beam (laughs) I love that I love when anime reference other anime We also know that there are two branches to the Xeon strategy here. McVeigh represents one, which is we need X amount of Y resource to achieve A, B, C, D. Mm-hmm. And Kaisili represents the other, which is regardless of our own needs, we cannot let the Federation have anything. Yeah. And, you know, subsection to that, the more we control by the end of this, the better a position we're in politically vis-a-vis the other Xeon factions. Mm-hmm. So She's not just thinking about getting through the war. She's thinking about after the war. The other thing that this battle made me think of was the attack on side seven. Interesting. Because you have Amuro and the Gundam attacking a base that has no mobile suit defenses. They have tanks and missiles and turrets, which is just about what the side seven defenders had. And Amuro is just destroying them. We see a lot of shots of Amuro destroying towers and cranes and barracks and other places full of what appear to be non-combatants. And one of those scenes where Amuro blasts a building, it's not clear what it is, but it's full of people. And we see the explosion and we see the bodies. It's very explicit. The closest thing I could think of to that is the blast that kills Frabo's family. It's a very similar explosion. The body is flying everywhere. It's visually almost identical. I think you're right. So it made me think of just last episode when they happen upon the mine by accident. And in that case, he has backup. He has support. You know, you still have the mine's own defenses and emplacements. You still have a couple of tanks tanks as ground forces. You still have uh, a single ship fighting from the air. But in that case, he had backup. This fight felt sloppy in Mm -hmm. places. You know, he's not choosing his targets. He's just shooting at anything he can see. Mm -hmm. At one point, he comes under a barrage from the tanks and basically can't move because he's under constant bombardment. You know, he's reasonably clever (laughs) in coming Mm -hmm. up to a solution for the uh, underground turrets. The the Wacka turrets? Yeah. Uh, they pop up and they he, shoot you and then they jump down into the ground before he can fire back. Yeah, and he throws his shield into the sort of doorway of the turret opening to keep it open just enough that he can then fire into it. Or no, he doesn't fire into it. He stabs down into the passage with his beam saber and the turret explodes. Yeah. Uh, and that poor shield again. <laughs> Although it doesn't break, but it is caught in the explosion and gets flung and stabs itself into the ground some feet away Mm -hmm. but it didn't this did not feel like one of Amuro's cleverer fights no I thought the shield bit was creative but for the most part he's getting knocked around and he's just he's very reactive he's entirely dependent on the Gundam's superior armor here Mm -hmm. if the Gundam's armor weren't as good as it is he would not have made it through this combat no chance 
and he's able to slaughter a lot of outmatched opponents. But once the Adzam shows up, even stabbing it with his beam javelin at close range, he's not actually able to destroy it. He gets shaken off and Makaveh and Kaecilia escape. It's not a particularly effective combat for Amuro either, whatever he may think in the immediate aftermath. It also occurs to me that he has fundamentally misunderstood <laughs> the purpose of Odessa Day because my understanding is that they want to capture <laughs> the mine uh-huh. that is their target and that will necessitate some damage to those facilities. But presumably they don't want to <laughs> completely destroy the thing that they're hoping to turn into a working mine for themselves. Yeah. You want to preserve as much of that infrastructure as you can, only destroying you know the enemy uh, you know, tanks and and guns and so forth. Uh, Instead, Amro just starts laying waste to everything. Yeah. And it occurs to him afterwards, like, oh, maybe I should go investigate and see if there's anything here. And of course, they've already wiped all the data. Wiped all the data. All he finds is a scrap of paper that says that this is mining base number 102. (sighs) Amro. Amro. Let's just, in this episode, talk about who looks good and who looks bad. Because I think this is an episode that really makes a couple of people look real good and a couple of people look real bad. So let's start with the winners. Kaecilia, definitely. (laughs) Kaecilia wins this episode. Well, for what value of looking good? Cold-blooded ruthlessness. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Not morally good. Okay. She kills it. Yeah. (laughs) Indeed. She kills a lot of people. Yes. Uh, Sela and Ryu, especially in that last scene where... They're discussing the fallout from Amuro's ill-advised attack. I don't know about Sayla. What does she say in that scene? Sayla says, Amuro must think he's a real hero right about now. Yeah. I don't know that Sayla looks great this episode. She's kind of still in the doghouse with me after stealing the condom. I think her three days in the break are up. I think she should be forgiven. I don't know. (laughs) I'm just saying Amuro's being selfish. She was also being selfish. Amuro's putting them in danger. She was also putting them in danger. I don't think she has a leg to stand on here critiquing Amuro. I wonder if in the beginning, when she says, well, we could execute him if we wanted to. She's not like trying to distract everyone from her own indiscretion. Be like, look, Amro did a worse thing. Look. Maybe. Everyone pay attention to the boy. But my point is, I don't think uh, Sela can't look good now. Okay. Especially not by critiquing Amro when she's only marginally less at fault. Okay. Uh, Ryu, though, in a lot of ways feels like the older, more experienced, cooler head in the room sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think his willingness to stand up for Amuro, to Fra at least, mm-hmm. uh, and then his gently put but still critical comments that Amuro's actions have put Odessa Day in jeopardy earned him a lot of points with me. Mm-hmm. That like he understands how Fra feels about Amuro mm-hmm. is the vibe that I get. That he he gets it. He understands, but also yeah, I mean he's gonna do everything he can within reason. So if Bright is ship dad and Mira is ship mom reuse the cool uncle oh yeah i was gonna say uncle (laughs) good call kai is the next door neighbor who is always in everyone's business (laughs) i think mcveigh really suffers in this episode yes in the past when mcveigh has appeared he's always been very in control and nefarious he's had plots we don't know about he's got a lot going on well and even as rambaral saying oh he is always very organized and hamon saying i don't know if i trust that mcveigh guy he's got plots and then in this episode he's very much reduced to like the toady. Yes, Kaecilia. No, Kaecilia. Whatever you say, Kaecilia. And not a terribly effective one. No. 
we're pretty much in agreement that Amaro looks like a jerk. I didn't even I this didn't episode. Even, I didn't even think that needed to be said. This is this is the worst episode for Amaro by far. Even worse than the last one. And the last one was not good for him. I had more sympathy for him in the last episode, though. He has eaten away a lot of that here. In the last episode, he made a mistake and he could have come back from it, but instead he doubled down. <laughs> and in this episode, having doubled down already, he doubled again. <laughs> he is quadruple down at this point. Interestingly for me, I feel better about Fra by the end of this episode than I did at the beginning. Mm -hmm. At the beginning, I was deeply frustrated with her, uh, especially her anger at everyone for talking about what they're going to have to do if they can get Amaro to come back. Yeah. Uh, Well, I think at the beginning of the episode, you and Frau disagreed strongly about Amaro. And by the end of the episode, Frau had come around your way of thinking (laughs) on it. Well, I think at the beginning of the episode, Frau feels too protective, right? She's, She's feeling defensive. And a lot of that gets stripped away when Mirai points out to her, but you do agree Amaro did something wrong, right? <laughs> like mm-hmm. you're not saying that he's blameless in this situation. And then, you know, Fra's case when she goes to Amaro is they don't just need the Gundam, they need you. And this is really about, oh, you're running away again. <laughs> this is really about your pride, right? Mm-hmm. And so you can't understand how I feel and closes a door in her face. <laughs> she- I, I'm sorry. In that scene, I, I really thought Amaro was just going to close the door and hide in the Gundam cockpit. Like, you can't come in here. This is my safe space. (laughs) I'm going to my room. Don't follow me. Uh, And then she follows him because she's not going to let him just run away. Uh, It occurs to me this is the second time she has chased him down when he is attempting to run from his responsibilities. Yeah. Maybe the next time she finds him, she'll just take the Gundam. Maybe. Uh, maybe third tries the charm. <laughs> uh, well, like I said earlier in the episode, at the end, she has her companion line to his, her parallel. Mm-hmm. He doesn't understand how I feel. Yeah. And maybe I'm reading too much into it. I don't know. But my interpretation of that is he doesn't understand how often I protect him, how often I go to bat for him, how often I speak up for him. Yeah. Well, and he feels like no one respects him. No one recognizes his greatness, but he doesn't understand how I feel about him. Mm-hmm. He doesn't recognize what I do for him, and he doesn't recognize my like, feelings of appreciation for him. Mm-hmm. Speaking of new capabilities we didn't know the Gundam had, the Gundam talks to Amro in this episode. I think this is the first time we've had the Gundam give reports That's in true. audio. And the voice is like, it's like a super high-pitched Haro voice. And sped up. My interpretation was that because of the strain being put on the machinery by the leader weapon, that it was affecting the way that sounded. Maybe. We haven't heard it at all. So as far as we know, that's what it sounds like. But in this episode, we don't ever see Haro. Is it possible that Haro has stowed away inside the Gundam? <laughs> has merged with the Gundam computer. And Haro is just pretending to be Gundam because... Um, Genki Amuro. Amuro has been ignoring Haro ever since he got the Gundam. That's true. So if Haro becomes Gundam, <laughs> Haro can have the attention from Amuro. Little did we know Haro is a jealous beast. When they set Amuro to attack mode, you they mean, never turned it off. You mean Haro? When they set Haro right. to attack mode? Did I say, did I say Hamuro? You said Amuro. <laughs> when <laughs> they set Amuro to attack mode. Well, that is also true. When they set Amuro to attack mode, nobody ever turned it off. That's why he can't turn down a fight. That's why he attacked the mine. It explains everything. (laughs) Except for his initial running away. He was just running to attack something.
Under the surprise attack by the Gundam, Kaecilia and McVeigh decide to test a new weapon, the Adzam Leader. The Adzam, that mysterious ship we saw at the beginning of the episode, launches and deploys the Leader, which at first just looks like a metal orb, but when Amaro fires at it, it opens and showers the Gundam in sand-like particles. A second part of the weapon flies over the Gundam and shoots cables down around it, forming a cage. These cables fill with energy, question mark? <laughs> Interacting with the sand-like substance on the Gundam to raise its temperature. Suddenly, the Gundam cannot move or use any of its weapons. The systems are completely overheated and can only just manage to keep the cockpit cool enough to be safe for Amuro. When we were watching this episode and we saw this part, we thought immediately to ourselves, that's science. <laughs> we should ask our science person about that. You have a science person? We have a science person. Oh, He's wow. He's this cool guy named Iraj. Hello. He's appeared on the podcast before back in episode five when he helped us figure out some stuff about reentry. And now he's back to talk about the super science of this secret new Xeon weapon. Hello, it's me. I'm back. <laughs> so we had Iraj watch this particular clip. I did. <laughs> and we're going to have him talk about a little bit about it with us and try to explain to us how this could actually work. If, in fact, it could actually work. There's, there's a few things about this that are difficult to understand and kind of contextualize, right? There's, first of all, what is this dust sand stuff? And then second, like you said, Nina, energy question mark, like what's going on in these cables? And then third of all, is there anything going on that we're not seeing? And we know when the Adzam leader starts to fail after it's been running for a little while, Kaecilia, one of the people operating it, says something about the magnetic radiation is weakening. So that's also in play. Mm, yeah. So definitely there's magnets going on. Magnets, <laughs> how do they work? <laughs> when I saw this, the first thing that came to mind instantly was inductive coupling. People who are listening to this podcast have probably heard about wireless charging as a technology that's kind of picking up nowadays, right? Right? There's these devices, you like put your phone on it and it charges it without uh, plugging in a cable. So there's ways we have of transmitting energy from one place to another without connecting them with a wire. And the way this usually works is through some form of electromagnet coupling. Yeah. <laughs> so the basic idea is when you have a, a current going through a wire, it creates magnetic fields around it that don't change in time. If you have constant current, you have constant magnetic fields around it. But you also learn that if you have changing magnetic fields, that can create an electric field, and electric fields can drive current, and a changing electric field generates more magnetic field. So there's this interesting feedback between electric and magnetic, which is what generates light waves and things like that. And so the idea of inductive coupling is that if I have some device that can generate a magnetic field that's changing in time, and I can put a loop of wire near that device, then there's going to be an electric field generated inside that loop, which generates a current. This is what happens, for example, when you have like a wind turbine, right? Blades spin, they're making this coil of wire spin inside of the generator, and there's a magnet nearby, and the changing magnetic field generates a current inside this coil, which you then send to the power grid. 
So the idea is there, the magnet is constant, but because the wire is moving, it has the effect of being a changing magnetic field. Exactly. Which power. Okay. Exactly. Because what matters is the magnetic field where the wire is, right? Once the electricity is in the wire, what happens to it? Uh, so electricity, what we call electricity or current is moving electric charges, right? Electrons. And what they do is they move from a place that has what we call high potential to a place that has low potential. And what we call an electric field is kind of pointing in the direction of where less potential is. It's similar to like a ball rolling down a hill. So what you're doing with these changing magnetic fields is you're changing the electric potential in the wire and pulling the charges wherever you want them to go into a place which you can later release them in the case of a battery. Or if there's an engine at play, the engine uses the energy stored in these electrons as they're moving. That's the idea of induction kind of in the abstract. You change magnetic fields that generates an electric field and that can create current. Inductive coupling is you take it one step further. You also know that if you have a changing electric field that generates a magnetic field. So if I have two coils, one next to the other, right, and I run a changing current inside one of them, right, like an AC current that's what you know goes through your outlets in your house or whatever if you have a changing current going through one of these it's going to generate a changing magnetic field the other coil feels that changing magnetic field which generates a changing current inside that coil and so that way if i have a current going through some wire i can transmit that energy through the electromagnetic waves in space into the other coil of wire. The problem with this is it's super inefficient, right? Because the electromagnetic fields are everywhere. And so there's nothing telling your energy to go in a specific direction, so to speak. So from the coil, it just goes out in every direction and only a small percentage of it is actually arriving at the other coil, right. or in this case, the Gundam. Right. So so we'll get to the Gundam in a second. So in a, in a coil, right, the whole point of using a coil is because ideally, right, a coil is very long and has many, many loops of wire in it. And so, I mean, I don't want to get into the details of this, but the geometry of that kind of forces the magnetic field to be in a specific direction. This is also the idea behind satellite dishes, right? You you kind of force the radiation that you care about to go in the direction that you want it to go so that you waste as little of it as possible. So in the case of the Gundam, there's a few things that could be going on. Putting the dust aside for a second. The first thing I thought when I saw it was, oh, it has these wires, this device. What's it called again? The Adzam Leader. The Adzam Leader. Iraj and I have just been referring to this as the head massager. It really looks like a head massager. Yeah. <laughs> so the Adzam Leader has these cables or what antennas is kind of what I was thinking of them as that like drive into the ground and they surround the Gundam and then they get all charged up with something. So what you could think of that as being is maybe you have some currents bouncing up and down inside. So they're like some kind of AC current. It's kind of the same thing that like a radio antenna would do. There's a there's just currents moving back and forth inside these wires. And then that would generate this changing magnetic field right around these wires. And then the Gundam itself is some kind of a conducting thing. It's a piece of metal. And so the changing magnetic fields generate currents inside the Gundam. When you have currents moving inside a metal, that heats that metal up. This is why light bulbs work, right? The way a traditional incandescent light bulb works is you just have a very, very thin piece of wire. You run a lot of current through it. It heats up very, very hot and that lights it up, which is also why it's very inefficient energy-wise to use incandescent light bulbs 
bulbs. Don't use incandescent light bulbs. Everyone should be using LEDs. This is 2018. Future light bulbs. <laughs> exactly. So the, the problem with this setup, right, is that if these are functioning like radio antennas and they're just generating magnetic fields just everywhere, then the amount of energy that gets transferred to the Gundam is just proportional to the area of the Gundam in comparison to like a sphere around this. In yeah. comparison to everything else in every direction. <laughs> right, exactly. So, so which is a, a small fraction, right? I did some back of the envelope estimates, which were wrong and I've redone since then. I think the efficiency of this setup would be something like less than 4%, uh, which is pretty low. Assuming that you can convert all of the current going through the wires into heat on the Gundam. So that's already pretty bad. Then you'd have to worry about how are you actually generating the currents on the Gundam, right? And that's where the dust comes in. At first glance, if the Gundam was just made of metal, then you wouldn't have really anything to worry about. But maybe the reason why they put the dust on it is because, this is interesting because we were talking about re-entry a bunch of episodes ago, maybe the Gundam has some shell of something on it, some kind of like ceramic or whatever, as we spoke about last time, and that's not conducting. So maybe what the dust is for is to provide a material that can very easily conduct electricity on the surface of the Gundam, but which will also so heat up very well, which those seem kind of contradictory to me because the I, I don't know. That was one thing I had a hard time wrapping my head around. But so the dust could be some kind of copper or whatever, and it acts like one big wire around the Gundam. And so these currents are just like looping around the Gundam, right? And again, if you estimate the amount, the amount of energy you need to convert to heat to bring the Gundam to 4,000 degrees, which is what they say in the in the show, I assume Celsius because Japan is a civilized nation. Um, <laughs> if you estimate how much energy it would take to heat up, I think it comes out to a couple of tons of titanium is what I estimated the shell of the Gundam to be. The amount of energy it would take to heat that up to 4,000 degrees Celsius. They do it in like 15 seconds in the show. So you would need about like 10 gigawatts of power to do that, which is a lot. That's is something like 10 power plants worth of power. Maybe maybe one very large power plant. I don't I don't know exactly how much power plants do. Uh, Tom was telling me about uh, nuclear the, submarines. The largest ever nuclear submarine has a pair of 190 megawatt power reactors. Right. So it would take what, like maybe like 50 of those submarines to generate this much power. Which, you know, in future sci-fi land, not that ridiculous, maybe. Each of the mobile suits has one of those power plants on it already. Right. It could also just have a very big battery of some kind. Maybe you don't need to be generating all this power on the spot. Because after a while, right, in the show, they stop heating up the Gundam. After some time, you were mm -hmm. saying the, the energy in the magnetic field is going down or something. Yeah. So maybe it just runs out of battery, right? That would make sense. One thing that, that bothers me about this whole explanation, though, and I'm, sometimes I really worry that there's some physicists listening to this podcast <laughs> and I'm going to be shunned from the community or something. But, um, right, if you have these changing magnetic fields, there's no reason why they would only generate a current on the surface. They would also generate currents inside the Gundam. I mean, there's a certain depth beyond which you wouldn't get anything anymore. But so there's no reason why it wouldn't just, like, fry all the electronics in there, right? I would have to 
think about this harder to know how deep into the Gundam these currents would go. It depends on a lot of various material properties of this thing. But yeah. Future circuits, I guess. Yeah, exactly. They're just very resilient. And that's the explanation I saw for why the other mobile suits were disabled by this, mm-hmm. is that their circuitry was fried. Okay. And that the Gundams was better made or with better materials or better shielded in some way. And so it wasn't. Okay. Um, we do have some data from, uh, I think, unofficial sources on the actual output, power output of the Gundam's reactor. Do go on. It's 1.3 megawatts. Oof. That's not much. No. No. But it was a lot in the 1970s. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Big time. <laughs> hmm. Maybe that's enough to cool itself. Th- no, I mean, it would take about it would take much more energy to cool yourself down than to heat it up, actually. Well, he's only cooling the cockpit to keep the pilot from being fried. All right. All right. Maybe that <laughs> and that's where the out. that's where the central computer and all the most important stuff is. Okay. So it's a small area, very shielded and deep into the okay. deep into the Gundam. Okay. All right. So so that but that means this like other device definitely has a a, a battery, right? It can't be generating that power on the spot. Well, and that actually explains why it would end after a few seconds and why they would have to fly away and not be able to use it again. Right. Hmm. It's airtight. It works. But so Tom had a great idea when we were discussing this of a way they could make this a lot more efficient. Uh, So this made me think, what if the energy is actually not coming from these antennae? The energy is coming from the thing at the top where all the antennae radiate out from. And it's actually either a coil or shaped like a satellite dish. So all of the magnetic radiation is going down. It's focused on the Gundam. And then the antennae actually work like a cage to constrain the radiation and keep it in this small area. And then Iraj pointed out that if it did that, then it could be possible that extra current is feeding back up through the antennae back into the device, improving the efficiency. Yeah, this is this was a pretty good idea from on Tom's part, right? Because if you put oh, if you oh thanks yeah yeah it, 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 it's really smart because yeah if you put a coil on top of that thing, you can very tightly focus it down onto the Gundam, and then yeah it, the stuff is going to radiate out, and then maybe you yeah you can use the antenna to to absorb it back. So yeah, I mean again, I'm not an engineer, I don't know. At all how this would work but there is some sense in which that would be a much more efficient setup if we get enough funding from the patreon we will build one yes you, you have my promise <laughs> if, it, if any of you are military contractors looking for horrifying ideas may i suggest you continue watching gundam <laughs> <laughs> That little joke in the beginning of the episode about how Katz, the oldest orphan in the trio, doesn't know the English acronym for very important person and instead says VSOP, an acronym that denotes the quality of a bottle of cognac, actually tells us a surprising amount about Japan's economy in the late 70s. VSOP stands for Very Special Old Pale, and it designates any cognac that has been aged for at least four years before being bottled. But let's go back a second. Cognac is a kind of brandy, and brandy is wine that has been distilled twice. The first distillation produces eau de vie, and the second makes it brandy. Once distilled, a batch of cognac is aged in oak barrels, and then blended with other batches to produce the right smell, taste, and color. If the youngest cognac in the blend is at least two years old, then it's very special, or VS. If the youngest one is four years, it's VSOP, and if the youngest is six years or older, it's extra old, or XO. Like champagne, cognac must be produced in one of a handful of regions in France in order to be called cognac. All of this means that in Japan, cognac is an imported luxury. Stupendously high import taxes on foreign liquor meant that a bottle of VSOP, which might go for 30 US dollars in Paris, would cost you 80 US dollars in Tokyo. In the 1960s, the Japanese bought practically no cognac. 
And yet, in 1978, they bought 2.6 million bottles of the stuff, and by 1988, they were buying 8 million bottles a year. This expensive luxury liquor had somehow become commonplace enough in Japanese society that in 1979, its unique terminology was well known enough to appear as a pun in a children's cartoon show. Japan saw massive economic growth in the 60s, with slower but still substantial growth in the 70s and 80s. They were the second largest world economy by the 1960s. Which is astonishing when you remember that in 1955, their economy was smaller than Italy. Like, like war-ravaged Italy. Yeah. During this time, Japan experienced very high growth in the value of assets, things like stocks, real estate, and so on. To the point where we could call it a bubble, which is to say that the values were artificially high. They were higher than they should have been. When this bubble popped in the 90s, it began a period of economic stagnation that has kind of continued until now in Japan. The 1970s saw an increase in pollution, inflation, and high cost of living, as well as an oil crisis, much like the oil crises experienced around the world. But it also saw an increase in per capita income, improvements in standard of living, a growing middle class, and a better life expectancy. A number of markers of economic prosperity improved, including people spending a lower percentage of their income on food, having higher calorie consumption, and increased consumption of meat, milk, and eggs. People also started spending more of their income on travel and leisure. So it sounds like throughout the 70s, while the cost of living was increasing, personal income was increasing faster. And so that led to really a huge rise in the standard of living. That's correct. Accompanying all this increased prosperity, though, was also an increase in social pressure and conspicuous consumption peaked in the 1980s before the bubble burst. What you mentioned about greater luxury spending and more travel, as well as the social pressure, actually connects to the cognac thing, because some of what I was reading was from representatives of cognac brands talking about why Japan was such a good country to sell cognac to, especially in the 70s and 80s. And one of the things they said was that in the West, people buy luxury goods in order to stand out. In Japan, people buy luxury goods in order to keep up appearances and stay in step with everyone else in their social group. Keeping up with the Tanakas, as it were. <laughs> yeah. So if you could get a certain group of Japanese people to start buying cognac, then everyone else in that social group had to buy cognac, even if cognac was a stupendously expensive foreign import. And as people began traveling abroad, Japanese consumption of foreign luxury goods increased as well. There's some ridiculous statistic like at one point something like 90% of the sales by luxury shops on the Champs-Élysées in Paris were to Japanese tourists. Wow. Yeah. And so the fact that the cognac was really expensive in some ways actually made it more appealing. Because right, it, because it, it, it's an indicator, I am one of the upper middle class, or I am one of the upper class, because I, I buy this of, expensive imported beverage. I am one of the beautiful fancy people. <laughs> this episode gives us our first proper introduction to Kaecilia Zabi, and I believe it's the first time that we see her in her full iconic outfit with the mask up. It is a very distinct look from the men in her family, who all wear Western-style military uniforms with lots of gold braid. She's also the only one of the Zabis who habitually wears a helmet and carries a sidearm, a combination that makes her look, to me, a little more like Char, especially since both of them wear masks. 
Now, I think I must have been mixing up two different versions of Cobra Commander's outfit when we discussed her earlier, but Nina was right on when she compared Kaecilia to the design for the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles villain, The Shredder. The helmet that is reminiscent of a samurai kabuto, the prominent pauldrons, the cape and form-fitting but not skin-tight bodysuit, although Kaecilia has purple clothes and a black cape, while the Shredder has black clothes and a purple cape, <laughs> and of course, the mask that covers the face from the bridge of the nose down. Now this similarity is because both of them are referencing the same thing, the popular visual depiction of a ninja. Now, you probably don't need me to tell you that the popular idea of a ninja outfit, that is, an all-black suit of clothing with loose pants, split-toe tabby shoes, a mask that covers everything below the eyes, a hood covering everything else, you know, the kind of outfit you see on Halloween or in a cheesy movie, you don't need me to tell you that that has no basis in historical reality. Historical ninja were spies, arsonists, assassins, and ambush specialists. They dressed like peasants, merchants, soldiers, wandering monks, and otherwise in whatever kind of garb would help them to blend in. But that ninja outfit that we are all imagining every time I say the word ninja did in fact come from somewhere. Ninja, as such, seem to have only been active for about 200 years, from the mid-1400s to the mid-1600s, during the Warring States period of civil war, and then into the early part of the Edo period after the Tokugawa shogunate unified the country. And this makes sense, since ninja were mainly useful in open warfare, where they were employed to provide reconnaissance about enemy regions, troop movements, supplies, and so on, sabotage enemy operations, and even instigate peasant uprisings. These functions ceased to be useful in peacetime. And, as a side note, they were not actually called ninja during this period. The historical term, officially, is shinobi no mono, or just shinobi. And while that was the official term, euphemisms were much more common. Euphemisms like ruffian, grass, and watcher. Or, my personal favorite, guy from Iga, since Iga was a region that produced lots of professionally trained ninja. They did have a sort of spiritual successor in the 17th century, when the Tokugawa shogunate government created a secret police force called the Oniwaban, or Garden Keepers, that collected information on powerful vassals and government ministers. A lot of later stories misidentify the Oniwaban as ninja. And there are a lot of later stories about ninja. They became figures of myth and legend just about as soon as the real ones vanished. They started showing up in Japanese theater, and this is actually where that outfit comes from. Last time we talked about Japanese theater, we were discussing the highly ritualized, stately no tradition. But now we're talking about the fun stuff, kabuki plays and bunraku puppet theater. Kabuki is a dynamic form of dance drama, and the name kabuki actually means something like bizarre or avant-garde. It developed during the Edo period, but was viewed with hostility by the shogunate government. And it was actually banned several times for being too debauched, erotic, and subversive. Bunraku is a unique style of puppet theater, with large, intricate puppets, each controlled collectively by a team of three puppeteers. The convention is for the assistant puppeteers in Bunraku and the stagehands in Kabuki to dress all in black, in order to blend into the darkness of the theater and convey to the audience, visually, that they are not a part of the action of the scene and should be ignored. And that all-black outfit they wore consisted of black clothing with loose pants, split-toe tabby shoes, a mask that covers everything below the eyes, and a hood covering everything else. And then a fascinating thing happened. When ninja characters started appearing in kabuki plays, they would dress like the stagehands. And this must have actually made for a pretty cool surprise for the audience whenever someone who looked like part of the crew revealed themselves to be part of the cast. And so it became a visual trick that told the audience that the character in black was invisible to the other characters in the scene. 
So what does this all tell us about Kaecilia? Well, here's what we do know about her so far. She sent a plainclothes agent of some kind to recruit Char after Dozel cut him loose. Her subordinate, <laughs> Machiavelli, is actively concealing something about the mines, possibly all of that solium, from the rest of Xeon. And she's prepared to destroy her own base in order to keep her secrets. Plus, she's already plotting how to put herself in the best position once the war is over. She might not be a ninja per se, but she is the sneaky Zabi. And her visual design reinforces that. Industry during wartime was often staffed with POWs, or prisoners of war, forced into labor. This was extremely common during World War II. Especially for the Axis powers. Now, this is in no way explicit in the text of the episode. I doubt it was something that they wanted to draw attention to, or they'd have made it explicit, but we think it's something worth thinking about. Now, during World War II, the Nazis used Soviet POWs for heavy labor, building roads, agriculture, construction, and mining. Death rates were very high due to poor rations and brutal work conditions. Japanese POWs in the Soviet Union were also forced to work in mines, where the death rate was something like 10%. Just recently, in 2015, the Mitsubishi Corporation apologized for its use of American POWs during the war, including in its copper mines. Sorry, 2015? Yes, 2015. Like three-ish years ago, 2015? Yep. It was the first time a Japanese company had apologized for the use of POWs. The government had issued apologies in the past, but this was the first time a corporation that had used prisoner of war forced labor, which is to say slave labor, uh, had made an apology. Wow. Yep. What most of these cases have in common is these were countries with severe labor shortages. Basically, their entire workforce had gone to war, and so you didn't have sufficient people left to grow the food, build the buildings, whatever else needed doing to support the regular population and the war effort. We know from the show that Xeon has much less population than the Federation. Of course it does. It's one side compared to the entirety of planet Earth plus a couple of the other sides. They certainly wouldn't have enough population to both field an army and staff a bunch of mines that they never controlled before, that they were not previously staffing. So when we see the Gundam blow up barracks and watchtowers... We know there are soldiers there. McVeigh says it. We see a soldier at the end. But a lot of the people in this mine would have been prisoners of war, either soldiers or civilians captured by Xeon and forced to work in the mine. Good job blowing them all up, Amaro. You're a real hero. That does feel like the kind of point that possibly Tomino would have made. Like, Tomino's not afraid of making Amuro look bad, clearly, but maybe that felt like a step too far. Impossible to know, really. Speaking of the mine, I actually looked into solium, that mineral that McVeigh claims to be extracting in minute quantities at Mine 102, the one that is so essential to Kaecilia's unspecified strategic goals that they had to destroy the base in order to protect the secret. And I can now confirm that it is totally made up. And what's more, it will never show up in Gundam again. I guess it wasn't that important after all. Or they did a really good job of keeping it secret.
Seeing Kaecilia destroying her own base rather than let the Federation capture it and its secrets, and remembering how Amuro was able to use a captured Zaku to determine its performance and use that data in combat simulations when he was trying to figure out how to beat Rambaral's goof in the last episode, I was reminded of a story that I came across while researching the Japanese Zero fighter plane, the fighter that I'm pretty sure inspired the Zaku. This is not the right place to do a full deep dive on the Zero but I promise that we'll get there soon. The Zero has one of the most incredible stories of World War II. It's the sort of story that fits right into a sci-fi epic like Gundam, and if it had not literally happened, you would probably think that it was made up. But all of that is for another day. For now, a brief overview. The Zero was Japan's primary fighter plane throughout the whole war. And at the start, its maneuverability and range were superior to any other fighter in the world. Its flight performance was so astonishing that when the US military received early reports about the Zero, they dismissed them as being aerodynamically impossible. The Zero gave Japan a major advantage in the Pacific during the war, especially early on when its actual capabilities were a total mystery to the Allies, who were left trying to glean what secrets they could from the wreckage of destroyed Zeros. The Japanese understood how valuable the mystery surrounding the Zero was, and so all the pilots had orders. If you are shot down but your plane is intact and you survive, or if another Zero in your unit is shot down but lands intact, you must destroy the plane so that the Americans cannot capture an intact Zero. But even so, the Allies managed to obtain three mostly intact Zeros. One was brought down in New Guinea, but the team sent to recover it instead mangled it beyond repair. A second was reconstructed in China, from one more or less intact plane and bits of salvage from other wrecks. But this Zero had to be transported the long way, overland, through the mountains to India, and then eventually to the United States before it could be properly analyzed, and it arrived too late to be useful. The most important capture was one almost entirely undamaged Zero, shot down during the Aleutian Islands campaign, when a Japanese carrier group attacked US reconnaissance bases in the North Pacific. On June 4, 1942, a wing of three Zeros caught an American scout plane and shot it down, then lingered in the area to strafe the survivors with machine gun fire while they floated in the water. At some point during this fight, Flight Petty Officer First Class Koga Tadayoshi's Zero was damaged by small arms fire and began leaking oil. The three Zeros in his unit flew to Akutan Island, their designated emergency landing point, and a Japanese submarine waited nearby to recover survivors. Koga went to land, but unbeknownst to the Japanese, the area they picked for the landing was actually a wetland. Koga's landing gear caught in the mud, causing the plane to flip upside down and skid to a stop. He died instantly. His wingmen, believing that he might have somehow survived the landing, could not bring themselves to destroy the nearly intact plane, and they left, trusting Koga to destroy it himself. U.S. scout pilots, after getting lost, managed to discover the wreck accidentally a month later, and by August, the Zero had been retrieved and moved to Naval Air Station North Island near San Diego. Kept under 24-hour guard, it was repaired and analyzed, and by September, it was ready to fly again. It only took one flight for the American pilots to begin discovering the ghost plane's limits. The secrets extracted from the Zero the tactics derived from them, and the improved American fighters just then arriving on the battlefield tipped the balance in the Pacific. So as much as we are horrified by Kaecilia's willingness to destroy the mine and everyone in it, it is totally consistent <laughs> with what people were willing to do to preserve state and military secrets. As those old World War II posters constantly remind us, loose lips sink ships. A secret can cost a lot of lives. Next week, we return with episode 1.19, Duel in the Desert, to talk about a feeling similar to regret. Fraternizing with the enemy. 
a more wretched hive of scum and villainy. That poor shield! Again! Disarmed. Do a barrel roll. And I'll get you next time, Gundam. Will you be able to survive? Make sure you do all the podcast things. Like, subscribe, share, and pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown on fine podcast services everywhere and on YouTube. Follow us on Twitter at Gundam Podcast. Check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for episodes, show notes, and more. And you can email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or shout your wrong Gundam opinion to us directly by coming to scenic New York City and yelling, Amuro's doing good work in this episode. He's a real hero on any busy street corner. We'll totally hear you. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. Historical ninja were spies, arsonists, assassins, and ambush specialists. There's so many sisses in there. <laughs> and try that again. Be more disciplined with your mouth noises. I really should have numbered these pages. <laughs> LEDs are cool because they directly convert the energy to light, not through heat. More efficient. Sasuga Amuro. <laughs> did you explain in a previous episode what Sasuga means? I think you did. You told me about it. I don't know that I did. It's kind of hard to articulate in English. <laughs> I think it usually gets translated like, that's our Amuro. Yeah. Sasuga Amuro. Yeah. But in this case, we're, you know, saying I, it sarcastically. Well, and I think you can do it like, that's our Amuro. Like, I think it can be negatively yeah. toned. <laughs> <laughs> when your friend shows up drunk and ruins your wedding, Sasuga, that friend. <laughs>